0: I'm Chris Reback. This is The 180, our podcast that explores how to transform 21st century education, how to turn it around using 21st century science. When it comes to learning and thriving during the pandemic, many students have faced one obstacle after another, lack of access to high-speed internet and devices, disconnection from teachers and friends, the cancellation of sports, clubs, and church choirs. But where many people see obstacles, Hal Smith, sees opportunity. Smith is Senior Vice President of Education, Youth Development, and Health for the National Urban League and leads the organization's programmatic, advocacy, policy, and research work in those areas. Across his career, Hal has focused on issues of educational opportunity, access, and excellence for historically underserved communities wherever teaching, learning, and development take place. Which is why, as you'll hear, Smith argues that the pandemic presents the chance to reimagine what school could look like, to seize the moment and try something better, grounded in the science of learning and development. One note before we begin, and ask from me to you. If you like our 180 conversations, I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to Apple Podcasts wherever you listen, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. It makes a big difference in helping people find the podcast. Thank you. Here's my conversation with Hal Smith. Hal, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. So you have spent your career focused on issues of educational opportunity, access, and excellence for historically underserved communities. Did any of that possibly prepare you for what the COVID-19 pandemic has done to American education?
1: Largely, yes. I think because the way my career has worked, I've had the opportunity uh, to partner with any number of institutions, the school system, uh, the after school and out of school time system, uh, social services and uh, social workers, even a little bit of public health. Uh, What it has done is made all of those relationships even clearer in my mind as necessary relationships as critical partnerships uh, in order to address not only this moment, uh, but many of the challenges and some of the opportunities that exist uh, in education today. I think what we've seen over the last year or so is that many of the things that were hypothetical uh, and kind of best practices, promising practices uh, over the last decade, if not 25 years, are really clearly necessary, right? They're requisite. They're no longer things that we can say, well, that would be nice to have. It would be great if we could get. Uh, I think this has pulled us into another way of thinking, of operating, that we need to be better prepared uh, to, to face the myriad of problems that our communities Uh, are confronted with when there's a public health issue or some other natural disaster or just in day-to-day practice that we've been far too siloed uh, in our approaches, far too uh, focused on achieving things in in simplicity and understanding them in simplicity rather than complexity. And this moment has really, really strained earlier notions of this is my work. As opposed to this is our work.
0: That is, um, wonderful to hear an optimistic point of view at a time when there are obviously, um, you know, so many challenges and, uh, you know, and, and great concerns. And, uh, listen, I don't, uh, I don't take you for being Pollyannish. Is your optimism around the sense that Finally, eyes are kind of being opened around some of the things that you've been talking about. Or is it even maybe more than that? Are you seeing green shoots of them actually being put into action?
1: So it's a bit of both. I would say that the green shoots actually uh, pre existed the pandemic, right? That there were places that I could point to and say, they're doing great work here. This is interesting here. This is something I'd like to learn more about over there. Uh, and I, I really think that the basis for much of my optimism is found in the place that this is stuff that is going on already, perhaps not to the scale, perhaps not to the impact uh, that is the moment is gonna require and requires of us now, but it's it's not illusional, right? I'm, I'm very clear that there are many things that are gonna be necessary to make it work, the evidence base, however, is there to demonstrate that there are people, there are agencies, there are institutions, there are communities uh, that are already doing parts of this and just need to build upon that to have even greater success.
0: So, so be specific for me. Um, sure. What, what is the this?
1: So the this is founded in the belief that I have that the Nar- National Urban League has that education is teaching, learning and development wherever they take place, right? And so if you begin there, you begin saying that the school is but one of the educational and developmental institutions in a community. And those of you uh, who may have heard me talk about this before have not, nevertheless heard this a million times, but I'll say it again, uh, that schools don't have communities, communities have schools, right? And so we've put, the emphasis on the wrong thing. The school is there to help the community do its work, right? The community isn't there so the schools function. And so if you talk about it in those ways, if you think about it in those ways, students, young people, children are experiencing learning and developmental spaces all across a given community. And it's up to the adults to figure out how best to knit those together, how best to create pathways, how best to create learning and developmental opportunities that reflect not only what young people are interested in, but the kinds of things that are going to be necessary to move forward a community. Leadership, service learning, uh, the arts, all of these are critically important. And we've done, I think, a terrible job uh, as adults, as policymakers, as even advocates, of narrowing down the conversation to it's either school or it's not education, or it's either in a classroom or it's something extraneous, something extra. Uh, Instead of saying we have a wealth of spaces, a wealth of opportunities, all kinds of relationships that exist for young people that help them grow, to thrive, to learn, uh, that are ignored when we only talk about it in terms of what a school can do. Uh, And so in, in that way, I think, There are many opportunities to learn about places, yes, like the Harlem Children's Zone, but there are many, many other networks, intermediaries that exist in this country uh, that are doing this, that are tying together spaces so young people have a wealth and depth of experiences in an organized manner, in a way that helps them thrive and gives them great support, relationships to caring adults, which we know are critically important, uh, but aren't tied to a school building. And the more we can tie together the institutions that are child serving, that are family serving, that are youth serving, to think about how to create an, a larger ecosystem of support, of learning spaces, of developmental spaces, the better off we'll be. So that that's the this in my mind.
0: What is your evaluation? Because you and I are having this conversation at a time when Communities are struggling. Communities are, are in some cases breaking under the weight of a pandemic, under weight of, uh, underemployment, if not unemployment. Our schools are highly challenged by, uh, everything around COVID, around, uh, school attendance, around teachers' ability to be in the schools. Uh, around educators dealing with the realities and frustration that their parents and their teachers and their employees and their students are feeling and facing. what are What's your evaluation of how communities and schools can best build each other for the benefit of our kids at a time when both entities are under such enormous pressure?
1: Everyone has to rethink their business model, their service model under extreme conditions now. you know, I, I would say that my colleagues in after school and out of school, t- school time and positive youth development struggled mightily in most cases to do remote learning, to do remote supports for children and young people in the same ways that schools did, because no one had thought of that as their primary way of doing things. Uh, It is now the primary way of doing things in many parts of the country. And almost everyone has pivoted to understand, at the very least, the ways they're falling short. They may have great ideas about how to do better, but they are very clear on the strains this moment has put on them and the ways that they're not able to connect to young people, to students, to families. What I hope is also true alongside all of that uh, is that all of the ways we've been stretched have made us think of partnerships very differently. For the National Urban League, we have affiliates who are dealing with uh, food insecurity in their area, and they are centrally located. They're very well known in the community, so it made sense that they would be food distribution sites. They had never done this work, but the moment called for it. Similarly, we had people who were doing rental assistance and housing foreclosure assistance uh, who had never really done that work. And now they have to have different partnerships and relationships in order to be successful at that. And so no one is standing on firm ground, right? No one can claim, oh, I've been doing this forever and all of you need to follow my model. So we're learning simultaneously. We're building relationships and partnerships simultaneously I think that is going to allow us uh, to have better results over time. I think what's also true in this moment uh, is we really need to think about using space and time differently, that we've advocated for us to think about the entirety of the education ecosystem, as I laid out, but think about this next 18 months 24 months as one period and not get locked into well my fiscal year is this and the school year is that and I'm not sure how you know we're going to cover the summer but really thinking about this next 24 months as a response we move through triage we now can have a response a thoughtful response on what's going to be necessary to support children young people families over the next 24 months and act accordingly. Think differently about how we use classrooms, how we use outdoor space, how we foster relationships with public health, foster relationships with museums and others. All of these are going to require us to do very, very different work than we're accustomed to. But everyone's accustomed to working uh, under this new model that requires stretching, that requires really hard choices Uh, and in this environment we're all on equal footing and should similarly be prepared to think with others about not just how to get out of this but what the evolution is going to look like on the other side. We need thoughtful, comprehensive, complicated responses even if they fall short that's better uh, than simply believing if we do the same things we've always done harder and uh, for a longer duration that we're going to get better results. I don't think anyone believes that anymore.
0: On that point, you know, as well as I do, that black and Hispanic students continue to be more likely to remain remote and less likely to have access to the prerequisites of learning. And a lot of this came out of, uh, there was a McKinsey report, uh, back in December that I'm sure you said, saw. Um, you, you know, the, these, these prerequisites around devices and internet access and live, uh, contact with teachers. Um, and, and some of the data, uh, show that while the worst case scenarios from the spring may have been averted, the cu- and I'm quoting here from the report, the cumulative learning loss could be substantial, especially in mathematics. Students of color could be six to 12 months behind compared with four to eight months for white students. While all students are suffering, those who came into the pandemic with the fewest academic opportunities are on track to exit with the greatest learning loss. It's a devastating analysis. Are you hearing tactics that from the superintendents that you're talking with, from the educators that you talk with, that really resonate with you to address this disparity and this growing gap?
1: Yes. And and part of it, I'll say, is in response to the work we're doing, uh, our partners in the readiness projects of the Forum for Youth Investment, uh, Investment and uh, in AIR. Uh, we are talking about this issue, but asking people to reframe it. Uh, so we don't talk about learning loss. We talk about instructional loss. Again, if all of these young people uh, were just sitting you know, in a closet somewhere, unaffected by the world, then I would argue that would be learning loss. But they are learning all kinds of things, even in this environment, right? Even those who have never logged on, who have struggled to maintain uh, connection with their teachers, they are learning. They are developing. Many of the young people that the Urban League works with, particularly in middle and high school, uh, high school age, are working themselves. They're working in retail. They're working in fast food. Now, that's something that we don't typically think of as learning, uh, but for us, that instructional loss, the the things that that report points to, and many have mentioned, that is also critically important. But Again, thinking of things differently than we did before is important. I would, I would point to the ideas of many of my colleagues who are very, very interested in helping young people recover, right? That's the language that they're using. And I'm, I'm okay with that language as long as it's tied to a view that is not about um, having young people simply be remediated. Right? That's where I think too much of this conversation is going. That folks are very very invested I think in understanding what is necessary to make up for lost time, right? If you accept yeah. that as a premise, that's where folks have invested. Instead, what are your what are your approaches that are gonna to lead to acceleration, right? Regardless of who uh, and what circumstances young people and students find themselves in, what are your uh, strategies? What is your capacity to accelerate learning over time? And again, that, that two year, 24 month process, I think will help us address uh, many of these gaps. If you're focused on remediation as your as your worldview, you don't have the same expanse to work through right you're You're simply dealing with the issue that's in front of your face. You should be on chapter eight, you're on chapter Four. How do I get you from here to there? I'd like you to spend this time as an educational leader thinking about. How do you apply all that you did learn during this period, all the development that you had, all the curiosity, the inquiry, the public health, the news, the election, all the things that happened, how can you apply that to accelerate learning? Taking the things that happen in a positive way and making them more positive to deal with the the absence of formal instruction or, In cases where formal instruction was provided, the differences in remote and virtual settings uh, as opposed to what the prior school year allowed people to have. So we have the opportunity uh, to think around acceleration, not remediation, an extended period of time. Right now you're hearing uh, folks say, well, maybe we shouldn't have summer vacation, and we should instead focus on everyone going to summer school. Okay, but is it going to be the same thing you were doing in school just transported to June, July, and August? Or Mm. are you gonna use that time fundamentally differently to help them understand uh, other things besides what was lost, right? What was lost in instruction but really say, you know what, I'm gonna ramp up the opportunity for experiential learning. I'm gonna ramp up the opportunity uh, for them to do more project-based learning and not simply, you know, a kill and drill approach that gets them to the right marker, but I can't guarantee that they've actually learned anything. Those are kind those are the kinds of questions I'm struggling with with education leaders. Uh the good news is everybody's open. Two ideas right they they want to hear practical solutions how might I do this who might help uh, I think we're we're in danger of many of the after school programs the museums etc everyone being tapped for tutoring right and again that's the, that's a small little box of what could be yes we can help this young person with their book report yes we can do that but to instill in them a love of reading, to increase their literacy, their numeracy, we can do that also, and that might not look as familiar as something that's called tutoring, or you know, adding another period to our school day transported to another physical location. I understand the impetus for that, to extend the school year and uh, school day, But instead, if we could think about extending learning opportunities throughout a given day and across a calendar year, we might come up with more creative options than just doubling and tripling down on the amount of classroom time uh, dedicated to math, science, and English, uh, which I, I know people are considering double and triple periods of those things. Uh, but again, simply doing 90 minutes as opposed to 40 minutes of the same thing, the same disconnections that young people had because we didn't have 100% attendance before this. We didn't have 100% uh, engagement before this. So why not try things that were prior to uh, March, 2020, were off the table or things we didn't consider to address the the kinds of issues we had before the pandemic. Almost none of the equity concerns that we have went away in March, 2020. Many were exacerbated, some came in a different form, but the inequities, as I, as I talked about, the inequities should not simply follow us into a new environment, a new school year uh, made worse, by the pandemic simply because we didn't pay attention to them, right? What, how are we going to upend these inequities over the course of this next year or two? What other resources are needed? What other partnerships are needed? What other content might be needed uh, to help young people, students, children thrive? I think is at the heart of the conversations I've had with education leaders.
0: That's a real challenge that you're throwing down, isn't it i mean you you are asking uh, education leaders uh, but also I think in in listening to you communities and and maybe that's going going back to a, your key phrase from the beginning of this conversation about opportunities um I'm hearing you talk about let's not focus just a hundred percent solely purely exclusively on the academics, on where the child is in math, in, in reading, in writing. But we better think about the whole child. Am I hearing you right? You are. You are. Uh, and
1: I think the moment calls for it. Uh, I I don't envision that we're just going to be able to pick up in, in most ways uh, once everyone is vaccinated with the lives that we had uh, a year ago. I think everybody's this life is permanently altered. Uh, our professions are permanently altered. And the challenge is how do we meet this moment, right? Not how do we get back to normal because the normal wasn't working for everyone. How can we use the future, near and long-term future to produce better outcomes than we were capable of before? And it is gonna require some new thinking Uh, some new budget allocations, uh, some flexibility, some braided funding, some new training and support, all of that is going to be necessary. And I don't pretend that it's easy, only that it is necessary. Uh, But if we simply just try to solve the problem that's in front of us, right, how do we get everyone up to their seat time? How do we get everyone a device Uh, those are absolutely important and consequential, but they are insufficient. It's a piecemeal approach when we need a comprehensive approach. And I hope that what we've learned uh, from the science of learning development, from positive youth development, from pedagogy in schools, from higher ed, from business and industry, career and technical education, that we're, we're thinking about all of the ways our work uh, needs to evolve, needs to fundamentally change, is connected to each other. Uh, all of those are challenges in and of themselves, and trying to do them simultaneously uh, is going to be incredibly difficult. I just don't see any other way forward. If If we're not just trying to replicate the world as it was a year ago, and actually trying to improve education and developmental outcomes, improve our ability uh, to learn and work and think together and live together. Uh, If we're not trying to do those things, then by all means, just pick up where we left off last March. But if we have any other intention, then we need to work towards that intention. And it's absolutely a challenge.
0: Hal, as we begin to close this conversation, I want to ask you about that Challenge and, and, and bringing this call to action that I'm, I'm hearing from you, really bringing it into reality. Because to do that, to meet those challenges, I, I think, you correct me if I'm wrong, it's going to require trust. Yes. And it's going to require cross-directional trust, multi-directional trust. There has been a not insignificant amount of reporting, and I know you know this, uh, recently, that a key factor preventing some families from sending kids back to school has been a lack of trust. The challenges for black families, in particular, to trust that schools are safe and have their children's best interests at heart. Um, have you seen or heard that concern? What, what can we do to fix it so that your call to action can be realized?
1: Absolutely. We've heard that. Uh, we hear it consistently. And it's, it's not far off from the concerns we heard about uh, schools and, and school-like settings uh, prior to the pandemic, right? The trust that you're talking about is absolutely central to the kinds of work that I envision and talk about and work with others on, but it didn't begin on with March 2020 and the, the response to the pandemic, new avenues of distrust were opened up, uh, opened up. It wasn't that the distrust just grew out of the, the response to pandemic. It was more, uh-huh, we're going to end up on the short end of this, just watch. So we didn't get the computers and tablets on time. We don't have Internet access. We had to go pick up uh the 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 homework in printed form every day like we're we're consistently at the short end of what this moment called for from March till today that's one element of it but all of the distrust that had built up been built up over generations right that has to be overcome and the only way to overcome it is to fundamentally do things differently right to to have people see oh wait a minute this looks very different from how things used to be. You mean my child can do X now when that wasn't available to them. You mean that they're gonna get supports when that was not next to them. You mean that they're not gonna be suspended uh, for not logging on every day when we don't have the necessary equipment. That's that's what I mean by the things that kind of brought we brought forward, right? So you as a district decided Uh, that you were going to go remote because of the pandemic. That's great. Absolutely right decision. You did not and were not able to provide equipment on a timely basis. Understandable. Everybody in the world literally is trying to get equipment. You also are not in the Internet access business, so you can't wire a community. But every one of those decisions ended up in young people being suspended or marked truant, or marked absent through no fault of their own and that is still impacting them negatively today. You didn't intervene either, right? And so that kind of thing, that kind of thinking is gonna have to be turned around because if you don't do that, then this will be yet another marker of how uh, historically underserved and disfranchised communities are being currently disfranchised and underserved, the legacy is one thing. The current impact is another. And if you're not going to address either, nothing is going to change. Now, if if folks see evidence that you're trying to at least address the current inequity, uh, the current disadvantage, the current privilege in certain communities, then they say, all right, I, I, I see something different than I saw before. But if it's simply... Finding new and innovative ways to punish, to disadvantage, uh, to privilege and overprivilege other communities and students. If that pattern reemerges under COVID, or you know, once we're past the worst of the uh, of the pandemic, if it looks like it's unchanged, except in how it how it feels to me, but the impact is the same. I have fewer opportunities than everyone else. Uh, I don't have access to the same resources, the same quality. Any of those things remain unchanged in the way they're landing on communities. They're, no trust is possible. Because the institutions, the agencies, the advocates have done nothing different that requires me to think differently about them or to trust them anymore. The, the advantage of this moment is you can try many things and fall short and people will say, wow, that was audacious, that was bold. You fell short, but I felt that you were trying to do something different. I saw the effort, the energy, and I'm gonna match that, rather than, you know, all everything has been brought into 2021 unchanged, except I can still feel, you know, uh, the, the boot on my back and still feel the burden of historical disadvantage, the legacy of uh, systemic racism, systemic disinvestment and the current impacts all at once. And you seem unmoved institution by this. Uh, I don't think it engenders any more trust And, and changed investment, changed strategy, changed engagement and outreach. All of these things are gonna be necessary uh, to generate additional trust, but materially people have to understand that you're attempting to do something differently and are looking for their input, their guidance, their support, their leadership in doing something different. Uh, that kind of relationship building will also build trust. And unfortunately, you know, we're still in triage reaction in too many communities. uh, And those communities see and feel that, right? These are communities that had ancient textbooks, that didn't have smart boards, that didn't have uh, reliable transportation, that were perhaps over-policed. And now all of a sudden, and after years and years and errors and errors of disinvestment, I'm supposed to believe that you've overcome that to prepare a safe space for my child when it had been unsafe across multiple dimensions for decades. That is where we are, right? There's, there's nothing about this experience that tells me you thought my child was worthwhile or that my child would be safe. Add on the element of the pandemic and help public health concerns. I have no trust and belief that you're going to do exemplary work in this when I've gotten below average work in everything else. And that's going to be difficult to overcome. Apart from the real challenges of uh, making a safe space, the belief that you've never tried before, so why do I believe that you're trying now, is going to be difficult to overcome. Not impossible, but it has to be tangibly different materially different in order to engender trust, not just that, hey, we got this, please show up and your children will be safe, despite what history has told you about how we've treated you before. We actually are doing better now. Uh, A statement like that, uh, a Zoom statement, a presentation is not going to get it done. Uh, They want to know that you're taking this moment seriously, uh, that you're thinking seriously about their children's well-being, health, safety, and that needs to be co- communicated very differently than the provision of PPE or, you know, we're going to spray down the desks twice a day. Those are insufficient responses to the moment.
0: Are there examples at this point, at this early stage yet, of districts that are able to put any of this into action? I've, I've not
1: seen districts do it. I've had uh, communities and intermediaries uh, in places like Tulsa, uh, places here in New York, um, every hour counts, places like Palm Beach, where there are intermediaries, usually out of school time and after school intermediaries, who are trying to knit together these conversations with their district leaders and even some legislators. Uh, I know that there are uh, Urban League affiliates who are working hand in hand with their mayors and children's cabinets uh, that the Forum for Youth Investment has has supported to, to come up with an agenda that better meets this moment. But there are smaller projects, certainly communities and schools and the community schools model, wherever those things are present, there is a strong foundation upon which we can build, but there are almost always... Uh, public-private partnerships, and not driven by the district. Districts are incredible partners in this, but I don't know a a district that's taken the lead in quite this way. Uh, But there are absolutely nonprofit organizations, family-serving organizations, even some local foundations and family foundations who are prime to take this work on they're just trying to assemble their tables right now on who needs to be there uh, and can be there to, to come up with something different because everybody is strained, as you said at the top of this. Uh, resources are strained. If there's not an influx uh, of of federal dollars and public dollars that comes in, uh, there'll likely to be a, another round of cuts before there's a round of building. And I don't know Uh, that we're going to be able to to move in an audacious way as I would like if there are nothing but cuts on the horizon. And so I think everyone is in a um, holding mode, trying to understand what's possible in this moment and praying, hoping against hope, uh, that they get some additional dollars in that will provide additional flexibility, and a foundation, a stronger foundation upon which they can build this new kind of effort uh, beyond plans, but actually to implement those plans.
0: Hal, when kids do get back into schools, when they get back into rehearsal halls, what are the things that adults should be doing first once we are back in those situations?
1: I think one of the first things is. To acknowledge what it is that we've all gone through, or still going through, right? The, the. Acknowledgement, of what they've experienced, what they've learned, what they've seen, the kinds of questions they have, about the world that they're inheriting, uh, or have and have experienced, are, are incredibly important. The second is to reestablish relationships, right? That rhythm, of getting to know students. We had a benefit in last school year that uh, many of the students had their teacher for the first half of the year and then were able to maintain them remotely. This year, many of them met remotely and will end the school year remotely, never having been in the same space. So that kind of knitting together of relationships is, is also gonna be important. Thirdly, I think to explore the kinds of things that we're going to do differently. Uh, What is career and technical education look like here? What does apprenticeship look like here? What does college going look like? We have questions that we're going to have to answer together. Uh, We have learning experiences that are fundamentally altered now. Uh, We are going to focus and concentrate on the provision of deep and rich learning and developmental opportunities, perhaps using virtual Uh, in a new way, you know, to give you access to other kinds of teachers and educators and students. Uh, But the world is is different. Let's acknowledge that, but let's figure out what we're going to build together. Uh, But relationships and an acknowledgement of what has happened, including what you've learned and how you've developed, but what has happened and not pretend that this uh, year plus is a blur and we're left unaffected. right? We, we are freestanding, independent individuals uh, with no anchor in reality. We're just going to pretend that this last 13, 14, 16 months didn't happen. But an acknowledgement of it, a processing assessing of it, building relationships, and then identifying the ways in which we can offer uh, deeper and richer Learning and developmental opportunities, I think, are the the first steps in this reimagined uh, educational ecosystem at the tail end of the pandemic and post-pandemic.
0: Well, why do I get the sense that uh, y- you feel that nothing is impossible and that this is a moment that, that can be met? And it's clear why you said at the very top of this that you look at the situation and you see opportunity. Uh, you've described that opportunity. Hal, thank you. Thank you for your time. Um, thank you for the energy and vision that you are bringing to uh, communities and families and schools. Thank you.
1: Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity and you know, to learn alongside all of the wonderful people doing the work across the nation. I hope to continue to be able to do so. So thank you for this opportunity.
0: That was my conversation with Hal Smith. My thanks to Hal for joining and you for listening. To learn more about how to transform 21st century education using 21st century science, go to turnaroundusa.org. I'm Chris Reback. I'll talk with you soon.